welcome back. Come on in. I have some ancient knowledge for you today. Happy whatever day you listen to this on. My name is Matt. Me too. And we're your host and somehow also the co-host. If you're new here, welcome to High Story. Here's a little bit about what to expect. I'm High, and I'm going to tell you a story. The goal of that story is to make you laugh and hopefully teach you something. Each story will either be a true crime case or some facet of history that I don't know a lot about yet. Try not to overthink it. Just enjoy. No new updates on anything, really. The lawn guys broke my window earlier this week, so that was fun. Oh, and the float valve in my toilet was broken, so it was making that sound until they came to fix it on Thursday, I think it was. And I'm going to try a new thing here real quick. Uh, I'm going to tell you some of my new favorite high snacks. Get yourself some pumpkin spice rolls, and if you've been to the store lately, you might have seen they have a new flavor of Lay's that have just been blasted with Cool Ranch Dorito dust. Not a terrible way to go. Not disappointed with my options this week. Thank you to everyone who listened to last week's episode on Bobby Parker. That was a wild friggin' ride. Eh, I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while. And this week, we're jumping right back onto the ancient history boat. I realized a few weeks ago, I don't know a whole lot about the rich and storied history of the Mesopotamian region of the world, so that's what we're going to do today. Sort of similar to the Mayans episode from a few weeks ago, how this is going to be structured, but I suspect a lot less mirrors and corn. We'll go over a few different civilizations and their historical significance, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, maybe a couple others. I also want to take a look at the religious pantheon and see what kind of interesting things are going on in there. And do I need to mention drugs, or is that a given for this show yet? Also, sort of a small milestone for me, hopefully one of many more to come, today is my 10th episode. Double digit time, hooray! Oh, and I finally figured out how to get on iTunes, so I'm on there now for sure if you prefer to listen over there. By the way, I guess I should mention, go do the free stuff if you feel like helping me out a little bit today. Moving on. On that note, if everybody's ready, go grab your time machines, if you can, and let's go learn about some really old stuff. Hear that? Getting a little fancier now. Ancient Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, a word that comes from Greek, meaning the land between two rivers. Those rivers being the Tigris and Euphrates. You might have heard of them by now at this point in your life. What is now modern-day Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Syria, Turkey, Egypt, you've probably also heard of this referred to as the Fertile Crescent, or one of the major cradles of civilization, of which there are six. Aside from Mesopotamia, also included are the ancient Egyptians, Indus Valley, and ancient China from the Old World, which I think just means the Eastern Hemisphere, and the Norte Chico civilization in Peru, and the Olmecs in Mesoamerica, which we touched briefly on a few weeks ago. Back to the Fertile Crescent. Hopefully your time machines are still fully loaded or charged, whatever it is. Back in 10,000 BCE, roughly 12,000 years ago. Somewhere right around here is when the earliest human settlements in the region have been traced. Being nestled snugly in between two large rivers and several other larger bodies of water, such as the Persian Gulf, made the transition from a hunter-gatherer society to a more communal one much less difficult. Being able to stay in one place for extended periods of time is greatly beneficial to pretty much any aspiring society, turns out. 
not having to constantly be on the move for food, water, shelter, or other resources while also enduring the sweltering and disrespectfully hot environment, allowed for the development of agriculture, writing systems, religion, math, art, the wheel, beer, civil rights, commerce, and astrology. Mesopotamia, much like many of the Mesoamerican cultures, was not as unified as, say, the Greeks, Romans, or Egyptians were. The region was more inhabited instead by a smattering of different cultures and ethnicities that all contribute to history in their own ways. The city of Uruk and Sumer and the cuneiform writing system are the two biggest factors that gets Mesopotamia the title Cradle of Civilization. While in truth, the only common elements shared across Mesopotamia were the writing systems, religious pantheon, and the overall attitude towards women. If you're like me, and that hit your ears in a weird way, relax. It's better than you think. They actually had many of the same rights and respect as men did, for a time. Then that kind of shifted into the more oppressive views that we're more familiar with, so kind of better for a little bit. And it is fair to point out, all of those things would have at one time or another would develop in other cultures at different times and in different parts of the world. This is just the earliest known examples of such as far as I am aware. That sound means we're now in the Neolithic era, pre-pottery and pottery. This is going to take place from the years 10,000 to about 7,000 BCE. We are in the Stone Age now, or on this show, the Stoned Age. I had to, I'm sorry. <laughs> there is some evidence to suggest the existence of crude settlements or camps, and also some fightings between local tribes and a bit of animal husbandry. These were even found before the use of tools and clay pots, and life went on like that for about 3,000 years or so, as society slowly transitioned from hunter-gatherers to a more agrarian one. More attention could be paid to the place people were currently calling home, and other advancements could be made. By the way, animal husbandry just means domestication. They weren't marrying their livestock. I don't think. And when I think back to the transition from nomadic to stationary life, I always immediately think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Cover the most basic needs of a functioning society first, such as food, water, shelter, then as those needs on the bottom of the ziggurat are met, you can climb up and start working on other important things that are not quite as necessary for survival, but still important, such as love, art, sex, architecture, religion, technological advancements, and other things that progress society as a whole rather than the individual. That one puts us in 7000 BCE. Now we have pottery and stuff. Weaponry and tools start becoming a bit more intricate and sophisticated. Economy still based largely on agriculture and animal husbandry. Things were just a tiny bit easier, and the homes were slightly nicer. Another 2,000 years or so went on like that, pretty sustainable, until... About 1,100 years from where we just were, but still 8,000 years in the past from you right now. That's, that'll be the last transition for a while, I know. We are now in the Copper Age. The previously used stone tools and weapons all leveled up and evolved into copper blades and hammers. What is... Oh, I tried to make a Pokemon-based evolution joke with Boldaron evolved into Bronzagger, but I forgot about it and... <laughs> I don't know what else to do with that, so 
if anybody out there wants to figure that one out for me, go right ahead, because I'm moving on from that. Because we are in 4100 BCE now. The ancient Sumerians start rapidly developing many different notable cities, such as Eridu, Uruk, Ur, Kish, Nuzi, Lagash, Nippur, and Elam. But for now, we're going to make a quick pit stop in Uruk. Widely considered to be the first city in the history of the world, Uruk was founded sometime around 4500 BCE by King Enmerkar in the Sumer region, which is where Iraq is today. The most famous king of Uruk has to be Gilgamesh though, his epic journey is a wild ride, and it takes top spot as the oldest piece of literature in the world, about 1500 years before Homer's earliest works. The first known writing system was developed here, chiseled cuneiform script into clay tablets served many purposes. Long distance communication, business receipts, land dealings, personal signatures, math, art, science, all written in clay with a reed stylus. There's evidence of early architectural stonework and masonry, pyramids, which they called ziggurats, and there's something called a cylinder seal. Oh, these things are cool. They were a small cylindrical object worn around one's neck and sometimes maybe pinned to a garment. They'd be made of dried clay, stone, certain metals like gold and silver, obsidian, amethyst, lapis lazuli, or lazuli, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. I've heard it both ways, and marble sometimes. Other examples of these can also be found in the Egyptian and Olmec civilizations just a little bit later on and less widely used. They would take a small piece of material, typically about three to four inches long, and maybe about an inch in diameter from pictures I can see of these. Think about like, think about the tube that a pre-roll comes in, around that size, or maybe like a big D-cell battery. Big D. They would carve an image on the outside of the seal, which would then be rolled onto wet clay tablets as a personal signature, to legitimize a business deal or delivery, and every single person from slave to king had one. Basically like your ancient Sumerian personal ID card. There was also a mass-produced bowl that would be loaded with grain and then quickly discarded after use. I couldn't find what that grain was, but the bowl itself was thought to have been used to pay workers in said grain. Standard size for all beveled rim bowls, allowing for a certain amount of grain to be poured in, makes sense to me. It also seems like a good way to keep track of how much grain you have. So you'd know if you were measuring your grain if you noticed you were a few bowls low on the grain hoard, you'd know somebody who's been stealing your shit. And besides those neat discoveries, the Sumerians were also responsible for the invention of, or at least credited with, a wide variety of different things. The plow, the hoe, different methods of irrigation, but I would argue the most important would be the segmentation of time as we know it. Using a base 60 system, the Sumerians divided up the day into 60 minute hours, 60 second minutes, 360 degree circles, and that was also helpful in other calculations such as weighing goods, measuring large amounts of bricks, widening canals, determining land boundaries, etc. Despite the rather impressive advancements in architecture and agriculture, I don't know if I'd want to be treated by an ancient Sumerian doctor though. It seemed very spiritual or homeopathic in nature to me, and one tablet lays out instructions for treatment as such. A sick person would wash the affected body part with beer. Hell yeah! Wait. Then they'd take crushed up turtle or tortoise shells and mix it with honey until it formed a smooth paste. 
Then oil up the skin and rub down the afflicted body part. Oh no. Yeah. Actually, the doctors at the time aren't often given the credit they deserve for how well they would treat patients. They had several different treatment facilities, both secular and religious. But speaking of beer, we should talk about other ways they used to escape reality. We found traces of psychoactive substances in the form of wax, resin, organic fats in old jars and pots. Cannabis was likely brought over by the Yamnaya tribe to the west and was used to treat glaucoma. They would mix it with celery and then rub it into a patient's eyes the next day and it kinda actually worked, which is incredible to me. Many records have been found to show cannabis being used during religious trials, religious rituals for medicinal purposes, in artworks depicting gods or other deities, festivals, it's just as much a part of life for the Sumerians as it is for the Shout. Opium, of course, follows the same path. Except for the part about this show, no thank you to heroin, I have no plans on teaming up with the G-Mob. Then you have the Blue Lotus, or Blue Lily of the Nile, sort of like the Mesopotamian and Egyptian answer to magic mushrooms. It's probably too dry for mushrooms to grow, so instead they would soak the leaves of these plants in wine, and then drink it, which would of course make you start tripping your genitals off, depending on who's listening, and talking to God. Hi, God. Much like the Mayan pantheon, some of this seems like stuff you'd only see if you were inside out of your mind on multiple drugs in the desert. So just put a light haze of weed smoke over the rest of this, huh? How did you get to work today? You drove? Rode the bus? Maybe you rode your bike? Maybe instead of work you ran out of snacks and skated up to the Circle K for Doritos flavored Lays and some Cran grape juice? Either way... Whatever method of transportation you used probably had some sort of wheel attached to it, unless you rode a horse. And you can thank these guys for that. Archaeologists found a couple of wagons in Ur, a different ancient city from about the same time but not too far away, with some with two wheels and some with four wheels. As for the city itself, Uruk was walled off into two different districts. There was the Anu district, named for and dedicated to Anu and Inanna, we'll meet them later, and the Ayana district. Scholars are conflicted on the reason for the Ayana district being walled off. Some speculate that Anu watched over the city until Inanna rose up in popularity, then gave her a private section with walls elsewhere in the city. Or, temples were thought to be the homes or dwellings where the gods would actually live, so the walls could also be a more symbolic gesture of privacy. The most mind-blowing part of this, though, for me, was the city of Uruk was also continuously inhabited until about 300 CE when droughts pushed people out of the area and into other areas. That's about 5,000 years that city was continuously inhabited before basically even anything we know in the common era. That blows my mind. But let's go over and see, uh, let's go see what the Bronze Age is up to real quick. See, that one was different. The Bronze Age puts us in about 3000 to 2119 BCE when humans first began working with metals. But specifically, we're going to hang out in Akkad for a little while and get to know Sargon and Naram-Sin, the first and final rulers of the Akkadian Empire. These two will cover their years 2334 to 2224, and Naram-Sin is a grandson of Sargon, just so you know. King of the very first ever multi-ethnic national empire, give it up for Sargon of Akkad, everybody! Woo! Or Sargon the Great to some. 
The name means true king or legitimate king, and he was born to a changeling, which I forgot to look up what that actually means. Oh, went through the whole Rolodex, I got nothing. I'll figure that out later. Being born quite illegitimate, however, he was set adrift down the Euphrates shortly after birth. He would be found by Aki, gardener for the mighty king of Kish, or Zababa, and being in close proximity played to his benefit as he quickly gained popularity and rose in rank, eventually earning him the title of Cup Bearer. This person's role was likely to serve wine to the royal family and guests, and would therefore have a great amount of trust placed in them. I mean, you don't want some jerk to poison everybody at the dinner table, do you? No, you want to trust these people. Not long after earning the title of cupbearer, King Urzababa, who sounds kind of like a cowardly wuss, places his trust in Sargon and sends him off to meet with a neighboring king, Lugal Zagesi, who had begun a campaign heading towards Kish. Lugal Zagesi, at this time, was also the king of Uruk, chose that as his seat of power during his reign. Orzababa had become suspicious of Zargon and sent him with a letter, or a clay tablet, to deliver to the approaching threat. It's unclear if there was any other messages contained in the tablet, but it for sure told Lugal Zagesi to murder Sargon. Then the two laughed. Lugs suggested a better idea. Come play on my team instead and we'll go kick his ass together. And then they proceed to go do just that, and Urzababababa runs away and hides possibly forever. This is a short-lived acquaintanceship, however. A brief blink in time later, the two would meet on the battlefield during Sargon's conquest of the region. Sargon would capture Lugs, march him through the streets of Nippur in chains, and into the temple of Enlil, where he likely murdered Lugal Zagesi. Probably with a sword. Over time, and not a lot of it, Sargon would conquer what he called the Four Corners of the Universe. Conquering village after village and city-state after city-state, he eventually unified the entire Fertile Crescent, or at least a huge chunk of it, an act that had never before been accomplished. That part's only half true, actually. Lugel Zagesi had sorta done something similar before in Uruk, just on a much smaller scale. Throne would be passed on through the family and eventually down to Naram-Sin, but was occupied by Rishum, Rishum, Rishum and Manist... Rishum and Manishtusu before that. Damn, that was tough. Naram-Sin would extend the already massive boundaries of the region, expanding the sphere of influence on trade routes, stabilizing other areas with his military might, and making a pretty bold claim. See, like his gramps, Naram-Sin would proclaim himself king of the Four Corners, but he upped the ante a little bit and also denoted himself to be a god, to be considered on par with any of the mightiest in the pantheons. Which one? We're getting there, but I want to check out Babylon first. I heard there's like a really cool tower and this garden thing that just like hangs there. It's supposed to be a wonder to see. We're getting there. As you might have guessed, calling yourself a god when you aren't one would probably piss off the other actual gods. Like Enlil, as you might have also guessed. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You're smart. He got super pissed and sent the Gutians to lay waste to the city of Akkad who left corpses rotting in the streets and in houses all over, the Gutians brought only ruin to an empire that had lasted over a century. And for the next several hundred years, control of the area would trade hands dozens of times between a number of different rulers and peoples. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Assyrians, Sumerians again, briefly. 
And right around now, the known history of Babylon gets underway. It's believed that Babylon may have been around long before even Sargon took control and that he built temples there, but records don't say a whole lot until about 1792 BCE when King Hammurabi comes to power. My friends, it appears I'm going to have a visitor for the remainder of this episode. Tish has came in. Hi, Tish. She's making herself comfortable on my lap. Pardon the intrusion. The Amorite king would rule for 43 years with his kingdom of Babylonia. Hammurabi and his code would end up being one of, if not the most, recognizable names in recorded history, likely due to being included in the Christian Bible. Hammurabi assumed the throne from his father, Sin-Mubalit, in 1792, almost 4,000 years ago, after a series of expansion efforts on behalf of the kingdom, but was unsuccessful. Forced to abdicate the throne after being defeated by Rim-Sim I, who was the king of Larsa to the south. So Hammurabi steps up to the plate, full of ideas and laws to better serve his people and improve the lives of the whole kingdom, and he does. Upon taking the throne, he erased the debt of the entire kingdom, worked towards beautifying the city and improving on public works like roads and temples. The Marduk temple was especially important as he was the patron deity of Babylon. The Tower of Babylon that I mentioned earlier had been heard thousands of times, thought to be the world's first skyscraper. A massive seven-tiered ziggurat with a temple to Marduk at the very top. Some sources that I've seen say it stood around 8,150 feet tall, or about a mile and a half. That would make it three times the height of the Burj Khalifa, which is currently the tallest building in the world. Fun fact, if you ride an elevator to the top of the Burj Khalifa at sunset, you can go all the way to the top and then watch the same sunset again. That's how fucking tall that building is. If it was real, I don't think it was that tall. Hammurabi's empire would be dotted with wars and campaigns and alliances with other rulers of other cities. Life back then seems like it was just a constantly shifting landscape of political upheaval, but I'm starting to come down, so let's go over the code of Hammurabi real quick, then we'll all get back up there and with a clear open mind and talk about the gods. Real quick but important distinction. Hammurabi's code was not the first written code of laws. That was actually the code of Ur-Namu. Hammurabi's code was just more clearly defined. Law codes were written as an interpretation of the will of the gods. Citizens were expected to know what the gods would require of them and how they should behave in society. The king was merely expected to administer the gods' rule. Hammurabi's code more clearly lays out a crime and punishment system, however. The earlier Ur-Namu imposed fines and penalties on land, but Hammurabi was more focused on retributive justice, where the crime and punishment are both held in equal standing. An eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, blood for blood. We've all gotta die. Well, you couldn't just, like, make shit up and accuse other people of wrongdoing. That would be dangerous, right? You can't do that. No, that's pretty much exactly how it went. If accused, you were either thrown into the river or swam a certain distance across the river, winning innocence only if you survive or make it to the other side. This was particularly true for women, and now that little bit from the beginning is starting to go away. Hammurabi died in 1750 BCE after becoming gravely ill, and within a year of his passing, the entire empire was in shambles and quickly fell apart. Wait, what about that room over there? Oh, hey! There's the exhibit for the Hanging Gardens. Oh. 
Oh, nothing here but a plaque. What are these words? The hanging, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Okay. We can't hear you. The hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, were thought to have been built during the reign of the king Nebuchadnezzar as a gift to his wife, but no proof has been found that mentions them actually existing. Oh man, they weren't even real. Why did I come to this era? Okay, I think it's about time for the really interesting part. Okay, so now that the stage has been set a little bit, let's find out what religion was like four to 5,000 years ago. In the primordial chaos that was nothingness, Tiamat and Abzu were the first entities or deities. Tiamat was the sea, and Abzu was the groundwater. The two gave birth to Lamu and Lahamu, who were said to meet where the sky and the earth meet on the horizon, and then they gave birth to An, the sky god, and Ki, the earth goddess. An and Ki were kinda stuck together, so inevitably gave birth to Enlil, the god of wind and air, which helped put a little bit of space between the ancient duo. An then moved the sky higher up, and Enlil put the earth on top of the primordial sea, thus creating the world. Ninhursag, which is another name for Ki, provides stable ground, and the wind and air hold up the sky above, which in turn keeps out the waters of the primordial sea of Tiamat from flooding into the world and destroying everything. If you are familiar at all with the History Channel or internet memes or just curious in s about space in general, you've probably heard the word Anunnaki. Over time, Anunnaki would eventually come to replace the Sumerian word Dingir, which was their word for God. Anunnaki was a word that meant children of An, or offspring of royalty or prince. This meant that all of the gods were considered Anunnaki, but as with most things, there was some hierarchy to the heavens. Here's just a short list of some of the most talked about gods that we have records of. There's An or Anu, god of the heavens, Enlil, god of the wind, Enki, god of water and wisdom, Ninlin, oh I think I, I meant to say Ninlil, queen of the gods, Ninursag, goddess of fertility and the earth, Ishkur, hurricanes, storms, lightning and thunder, Utu, god of sun and justice, Nana, god of the moon, Inanna or Ishtar, goddess of beauty, warfare and love, Ninurta, one of the warrior gods, Nuska, an emissary to Enlil, Nisaba, the scribe goddess, and Gilgamesh may have been a demigod, but I thought he was just a hero, so he might be included in this or not. I'm going to put him in because I like saying his name, and it's fun. The Great Below serves as the underworld, also called Kigal. Far, far under the earth, below the subterranean ocean, or Abzu, ruled by the goddess Ereshkigal, but Utu was its supreme ruler. Kigal was surrounded by a massive river called Idkura. After you cross the river with the help of a boatman, name not specified that I could find, the dead would then lay eyes upon Ganzer and its gatekeeper, Neti. Ganzer was the palace of Ereshkigal. Similar to other mythologies, the dead would be placed in front of judges, and if freed from the burdens of their life, they were allowed to carry on or do as they please, enjoy your stay in the city of the dead, or thrown in ghost jail to have their hearts cooled, and I don't know exactly what that means. I imagine completely wiped from existence. The Sumerian underworld was brutal. There was no reward in the afterlife, no rest, just hunger, pain, and darkness. 
And now add demons into the mix. Most lived in the underworld in Kigal, but they weren't prisoners. They were free to come and go as they please. Oh, and demons here doesn't necessarily reflect a direct correlation to evil, as this word stems from the Greek daemon, which just means spirit, not the English demon, which definitely is evil. Just wanted to clear that up. They liked the darkness of the underworld, though, so for the most part, we wouldn't have to deal with them too much. Except sometimes. They came in many different types, all shapes, all sizes, hosting an expansive catalog of different abilities. They would take a spot next to the edge of someone's bed, or maybe just sit in the dark corner of their room, causing horrible, vivid nightmares and hallucinations, and... Demons, I imagine, were to blame for the otherwise unexplainable. Mental illness, disease, nightmares... But they had no concept of good or evil, no right and wrong. They simply just existed, and whatever was nearby caught the contagious effects of whatever power they had. Like this one time, Asag, a violent and brutal demonic ruler, went on a campaign to take over foreign lands in the above world, and Ninurta, one of the warrior gods I mentioned a minute ago, he caught wind of this, maybe sent by Enlil, and he got big mad and marched over there to curb stomp his ass back into Kigal. And Ninurta may be a powerful warrior capable of destroying demons, but Enki was the architect of paradise. He got bored one day and decided to construct a city for his wife, Ninsikila, and called it Dilman. Here there would be no pain, no sadness, no hunger, no thirst, no war, no crime, no mercy from the joy and happiness. What do you think is going to happen next? Inki and Ninsikila have the perfect place to live. I mean, it's actual paradise. We have no one to conquer, no demons to kill, everybody's healthy, nobody's stealing anything. I'm literally the god of water and wisdom, so I know no one is thirsty either. I am. I have an idea. Ninsikila, my beautiful wife. Why don't you and I go over there? I've got the whole evening planned. Why don't we go over there? There's some nice candles, some flower petals. Don't worry, got the whole evening planned. Let's go over there, and of course I've got a lovely meal being prepared as we speak. Big man plan right here. Let's go over there, and then after dinner, and the candles and the flower petals, and then just down the hall and right across from the botanical garden that you love the smell of. See, whole thing planned out. Let's go over there and get fucking. And they do. Inky and his wife live out the previous couple of paragraphs for quite a long time, conceiving many more minor deities. That was fun to say. Dillman may have also been a real place, too, somewhere in the Fertile Crescent, Persian Gulf area. It's mentioned in several different texts, but as of yet remains undiscovered, as it probably was destroyed by a flood. So after all that god-making, Inky gets pretty tired, as one does, and decides, you know what, I'm gonna go take a nap. And all the minor gods who just built paradise for him were pretty tired before and now pretty pissed. Yeah, what the hell, man? Constructing paradise is tiresome work, so they ask Abzu for help. They request some assistance in doing manual labor, and Abzu obliges and makes them some assistance. Humans were formed out of clay, not corn this time, eh, to help with the gods in various manual tasks. The gods also got bored pretty quickly, since now there's not even any work to do in paradise. Damn humans took all their jobs, so now they start making humans with birth defects and deformities. And there's a shitload of new stuff going on right now. These strange tiny creatures that kind of look like gods and some that kind of don't look like anything. 
and some that kind of just take up space, but every single one of them makes so much damn noise that it wakes up Inky and now he's pissed. Yeah, you ever accidentally woken up dad from a deep sleep? Yeah. Mine never did anything like this though. Inky was so upset about being woken up by the humans and their audible worship that he said, fuck them all, and flooded the entire planet. But not before Ziasudra came with his big ass boat loaded down with tons of animals and people and rescued everybody superhero style. They floated around for a week and after about seven days, the gods draw back the floodwaters. All right, you win. And in fact, you know what? We're so impressed. We're gonna let you rule over your own kingdom back east and make you immortal. Okay? Cool. Now after hearing of one man's ascension into godhood, Gilgamesh is a little bit jealous and rightfully terrified of the underworld and death. He wants to find out how he can become more than just a demigod and seeks Ziusudra, who also got a new name, forgot to mention, he's Utnapishtim him now. Gilgamesh seeks him out to find out how to achieve immortality. Utnapishtim sends him on a quest to find seven Dragon Balls, I mean a very specific plant, probably something mildly hallucinogenic if I know mythology at all, and to return it to him. Gilgamesh is unsuccessful in this quest, however, and eventually dies anyway, and now watches over Kigal as Elden Lord, I mean as a judge. Sumerian mythology is a lot more complex and a lot more complicated than I thought going into this week, so... That's all I really have time for today. I tried to fit as much interesting stuff in as I can, but there's just so much more that I had to leave out for time reasons, but I really hope you enjoyed what we did talk about today. I think my favorite things were probably the cylinder seals. Those I kind of really want one of those now. That sounds really neat. And Uruk existing for over 5,000 years up into the common era. That fucking blew my mind when I heard that. Oh, and the time stuff, too. I forgot that that originated in ancient Sumer. But it seems like every time I research a new culture or civilization, the biggest theme I keep seeing is that humans are really fucking good at figuring stuff out. Necessity being the mother of invention and humanity needing literally everything, we had no choice but to just figure out how to do stuff. But sometimes people will like to asterisk our accomplishments by insisting on the presence of extraterrestrials. And I'm not going to lie, I want that to be true. I really do. I would love to find out I'm half-alien god-being or something one day. Wouldn't you? I mean, how great would that be? I just don't see enough actual, tangible evidence yet that says, for sure, yeah, it was definitely aliens for sure here and they're coming back. That's going to have to be a whole different episode on its own, because there's as much Sumerian as I ran into this week, there's an equal amount, if not more, of this other alien stuff that I've also got to filter through, so that's going to take a little while to put together. Anyway, thank you for listening to me ramble on this week. Go do the free stuff, check social media stuff, rate, review, whatever thing you want to do. I'm off to go start next week's episode. Going to be something true crime again, but I've still a decision to make. And until next week, everybody, stay kind. <laughs>